When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I just got to announce that I was on the keto diet, but I've been ambushed by a cake. This cost of living issue, this tax and spend row is punching through and it will continue to punch through rather than this endless theatrics. To say follow the science as some Secretary of State did, I'm sorry. I mean, I want to hold my head in my hands and despair at that. Sorry, we just got to take a moment here. My life's work is done. I've managed to teach Alison Pearson about the difference between percentages and percentage points. God, I'm so chuffed. One. We have Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Can Boris cling on? For the third week in a row, that's the question gripping British politics. Forget inflation at a 30-year high, spiralling fuel bills and possibly the most serious east-west flare-up since the Cold War. So what if that's what the vast majority of us are concerned about? We need to hear more about Downing Street cheese and wine parties, more about the Prime Minister's wallpaper, more about Boris Johnson's Colin the Caterpillar birthday cake. (laughs) But you know what, co-pilot? I think the mood's shifting. Yes, there's still righteous anger across the country, given drinks parties at the heart of government, when the rest of us weren't allowed to hold birthday parties, weddings, funerals or any kind of meaningful gathering, and rightly so. Yet there's also a sense that the media is engaged in a drip-feed operation designed to unseat a democratically elected leader, and that obsessing over rules which everyone knew were deeply imperfect has perhaps become a bit too much. And here's something else, Alison. Inspired by your column in Wednesday's Telegraph, a powerful piece, even by your standards. You've called Copilot for a law that gives all of us an inalienable right to have support from a person we love and trust at times of extreme need, enshrined in law. I fully agree with you, Alison. Such a law is now overdue, given the unnecessary and ongoing cruelty within too many institutions in our health and social care system. Well, before we get on to those poignant and weighty matters, Halligan, I just got to announce that I was on the keto diet, but I've been ambushed by a cake. So there I was, just high... Just the one. <laughs> well, high-protein diet, obviously, to shed the Christmas weight, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, springing from behind an arras, comes a Mr Kipling mini Battenberg. I mean... It wasn't Mr Kipling, it was like Mr Ben, as if by magic... <laughs> A cake appeared. A cake appeared. (laughs) Yes, our poor Prime Minister was minding his own business, running the country within number 10, when suddenly he was ambushed, ambushed, I tell you, by a cake, a birthday cake with candles on it. And you may recall, Liam, that one of the many marvellous rules to which uh, the free people of this country were subject, I think we weren't allowed to blow out 
candles on a cake. I think we were allowed to light them, but there must be no breathing out <laughs> for fear that the dreadful coronavirus could spread from blowing or singing. If you could actually get them lit, given that the doors and windows were all open, as gale force if you're born between sort of, you know, September and March. <laughs> Winter winds coming through. This is where we've got to in our great polity is the debate as to whether or not you were allowed to blow up birthday candles. It's it's such an odd time, isn't it, Liam? I mean, I was just thinking that this is a bittersweet day for the Prime Minister. We're going out. uh, Planet Normal's going out today, Thursday, the 27th of January. All COVID restrictions are lifted in England No more working from home, no more COVID passes to get into theatres, nightclubs, bigger events, no more mandatory masks in shops or on public transport, except in the People's Republic of Sadiq Khan, also known as London. The Office for National Statistics just estimated that 98% of British adults has COVID antibodies, partly due to a hugely successful vaccine rollout and partly, of course, due to millions of us having caught COVID, got better and developing lashings of long-lasting natural immunity. By any standards, Liam, this is a major achievement. So our Prime Minister finally said no, as we know, to the doomsters and gloomsters, lifting restrictions both in July and refusing to give the sage doommeisters another lockdown after Christmas. We are, as a result... Today, almost the first country in the world to be rid of COVID restrictions. That is fantastically good news. But the bad news is that the party of law and order and the government is under investigation by Scotland Yard, by the Metropolitan Police, for possibly breaking the law. And as we record, Liam, we are still hanging on tenterhooks for the Sue Gray report, aren't we? Waiting for Godot. (laughs) (laughs) I do think there's been a mood shift. I think there's been a mood shift even here on Planet Normal. You and I were extremely angry about those lockdown parties at the heart of government. You and I, despite what we've said on Planet Normal in terms of our scepticism towards latter stages of lockdown, highlighting the draconian rules, the inhumanity of some of those rules, we have in our personal lives been absolute sticklers for the rules We've both been fully vaccinated with both jabs. I remember at the time of a very significant birthday for you, you had only a very small gathering within the COVID rules. I know that caused you great personal upset and alarm, and yet you went through with it anyway. We've had kids who have become 18, 21 in our respective families. We've had weddings, funerals that haven't happened, or they've happened in only a very, very stripped down way causing upset to many people concerned and that's why you and I were both so angry at the revelations that parties had stupidly been held at the heart of government and at a time like now where we face the most serious cost of living crisis for 30 years with more to come I'm afraid when there's obviously a lot of geopolitical turmoil going on, when financial markets are extremely rickety, when the country is screaming out for leadership, we wouldn't have a government absolutely on the back foot. We wouldn't have a political media class absolutely obsessed with what looks like minutiae to lots of people. I think the sense of anger is giving way now to a sense of indignation and confusion that this situation isn't cleared up. And more and more people I speak to now 
having got over their initial shock and righteous, understandable uh, upset at this rule breaking, are now saying to me, everyone broke the rules a little bit around the edges. It's what helped to keep us all sane. Well, I don't know, Liam. I'm, you know, as me, I'm always in about three minds. I mean, you know, you mentioned that I had a significant birthday and I had just a handful. We won't mention which one. Won't mention which one. 21 again. I steered around that. See, I know you did. Very chivalrous. Thank you. I mean, as Planet Normal listeners will know, I thought many of these rules were absolutely bonkers. And the reason that I mainly, almost entirely actually, abided by them was because they were the law. They were the law of the land, and I didn't want to do anything to bring my employer, the Telegraph, into disrepute, which is what we saw happened on Sky News with Kay Burley's party, which was attended by Beth Rigby and many of her colleagues. So I was doing that because it was the law. But really, to me, do it comes down to this. Do the COVID rules however ridiculous or disproportionate, apply to the people who made those laws. And I think a sense of natural justice says, yes, yes, they damn well do. If you are going to allow police to arrest two women for carrying a thermos flask on a walk and call it a picnic at a time when having colleagues sing happy birthday, when singing indoors was Banned. I think that, you know, there was a very interesting headline yesterday on the front of the Daily Mail saying, you know, we're getting this all out of proportion. But we got this all out of proportion in March 2020, didn't we? Look, I'm swayed because it alarms me when I see someone like Andrew Adonis, Lord Adonis, crowing and saying, if Boris goes, Brexit goes. Similar kind of rumblings coming from the old sapus, Michael Heseltine. Personally, you know, Liam, I dislike the gleeful get Boris out media pylon. His enemies in the BBC particularly are having an absolutely splendid time. And I do believe fundamentally we are so much freer today than if Keir Starmer had been the Prime Minister. That said, I do think this matters. And I think to pretend it doesn't matter insults millions of people who forewent, is that word, forego, they did without many of these nice things because the government told them to do so. I think that's right. A lot of people are in two minds. A lot of people want this issue over with in whatever form that takes. And increasingly, I think ordinary men and women, households up and down the country are screaming for some kind of leadership when it comes to their household finances. Already, the average fuel bill, Alison, across the household, the price cap is £1,277. That's up on last year very significantly. And those fuel bills could almost double at a stroke. The price cap will be set by Ofgem on the 7th of February, so very, very soon. And then that maximum price cap will kick in in April. And it could easily be over £2,000. And that is going to hit a lot of households very, very hard indeed. And it's not just the poorest, the most vulnerable households, many of whom will absolutely correctly and properly qualify for means-tested benefits, winter fuel allowances, and so on. For me, it's what Theresa May called, I thought, in one of the best phrases she ever used, better than Brexit means Brexit, or the country that I love when she (laughs) resigned. Um, A good phrase that she came up with and her advisors was the just about managing people 
folk who aren't getting lots and lots of benefits, who are the working poor, who aren't classified as poor but are struggling, if they suddenly have to pay an extra thousand quid a year plus just for their energy bills, as well as having to pay through the nose for other household goods, given that inflation is now running at five, six, seven percent. I actually think real inflation is already in double digits. And I'm not talking about input inflation or wholesale inflation. I'm talking about inflation in the shops or the retail price index, which we're told. But it's it's those just about managing people who often have voted Tory in the past, who are the swing voters, who are the people in working and running small businesses, operating as sole traders out of a van. People getting on and striving to improve their lives, they are often conservative voters if they think they're going to get a low tax, competent outcome from the conservatives. And I've just interviewed David Davis, actually, and he told me that he thinks Boris will now not be prime minister this time next year. And he says if this national insurance rise goes ahead in April, then the Tories will lose their majority at the next election, whoever is leader. Let's be clear what we're considering here. We're not just considering a kind of bailout package for the energy companies or scrapping VAT on energy bills or whatever. One of those two things is going to have to happen. We're talking now and the cabinet is split on the question of do they go ahead with a tax rise that's already been announced and legislated for. That could be reversed. That's a very serious situation. And it strikes me that there's a very strong argument that it should be reversed, given this huge cost of living spike that we're now living through. A cost of living spike, which, in my view, personally, much of our political and media class has been very slow to understand. Well, Halligan, I actually read your Sunday Telegraph column this week, an annual treat, I must say. You say all the right things. You you know how to make a man feel good, don't you? (laughs) Actually, it was surprisingly good. But, I mean, lots of things were jumping out at me. I think things that the public probably aren't really aware of. You pointed out, Liam, that in April, the tax rises will kick in 1.25 percentage points on national insurance. And something I hadn't really realised is because they froze the income tax threshold, this is going to drag a lot more people into the sort of into the tax net. And it could be £600 per household. So all these things are starting to stack up. And as well as that... You, you, know, you know what? You know what? Sorry, we just got to take a moment here. My life's work is done. <laughs> I've managed to teach Alison Pearson about the difference between percentages and percentage points and about fiscal drag. God, I'm so chuffed. I've actually <laughs> double circle percentage points because I knew if I got it wrong, the co-pilot I'd be would, on be, you. would be absolutely pouncing. But you also <laughs> pointed out, Liam, I think this is this is a very interesting and potentially embarrassing thing because Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, didn't she go and visit Bury South where we just had one of the Red Wall Conservative MPs defecting to Labour? And Rachel Reeves was able to say Conservatives are now the high-tax, low-growth party. I mean, that is a pretty wounding charge, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, as I said in the column, maybe you didn't get all the way to the end after all. (laughs) I was too busy looking at your lovely picture, you know. (laughs) You look like something out of New Order, don't you, really? With the long fringe. With the long fringe, yes. (laughs) And to go to Bury South and to say those words will really have been like a kick in the teeth to a lot of Tory backbenchers because they want Boris Johnson to say, 
we are the low tax, high growth party, rather than Labour calling them the high tax, low growth party. And by the way, says Rachel Reeves, I want to cut national insurance contributions, not increase them. So through all this miasma of cake and wallpaper and (laughs) the Prime Minister's infant child swing and lots of spads in Downing Street, special advisors drinking Prosecco out of suitcases. The old style political debate about tax and spend, the red meat of politics, cost of living, household budgets, wallets and purses, things that really, really matter to ordinary men and women. Even in this period of tumult, a new Cold War, we're told, this cost of living issue, this tax and spend route is punching through and it will continue to punch through and in my view rightly so because this is what the essence of politics should be rather than this endless theatrics. Did we ever mention to Planet Normal listeners that you got me this giant bottle of champagne for my unmentionable birthday? I think it was even bigger than a Jeroboam. It was the. I think it was a Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, it's never been cracked open. And I should say to all our lovely listeners... That you weren't ambushed by it on Christmas Eve. It's no? like a caveman's <laughs> club of a champagne bottle. And we have often joked privately, haven't we, co-pilot, that we, we should one day do a podcast, perhaps the very last Planet Normal podcast, no! if Theodora Leludis would let us do do something so outrageous and have two straws and consume the Nebuchadnezzar of champagne as we record the podcast (laughs) and see how quickly it descends into Derek and Clive levels of wickedness and profanity. Of insight and mirth. (laughs) You can tell the listeners what you say to me when we're not recording. But seriously, look, we have got this you know, in the next 24 hours, 48 hours, Sue Gray. Now, I should say this to you, Liam, because it made me laugh. So brilliantly named. She's like a made-up person in a novel, isn't she, Sue Gray? But you know my other half who disdains politics and whenever the Today programme comes on the radio alarm in the morning, says, switch off that arguing. He always says, switch off that arguing. But even he said, (laughs) he pointed out that he keeps getting Sue Gray confused with Sue Ellen from Dallas. She's Linda Gray, isn't she? Linda Gray. So she was played Sue Ellen and she was Linda Gray. So perhaps Sue Gray is a weird amalgam of Sue Ellen and Linda Gray. Not not to be confused with Victoria Principal, who played Pamela, or Patrick Duffy, who played Bobby, having played the man from Atlantis. (laughs) (laughs) But look, so Sue Gray, probably in the next, well, we think 24, 48 hours, we're recording this before the inquiry has landed. I mean, this could be real make or break stuff. I think we were recalling, Liam, that The only, I think, previous prime minister to be interviewed by the police, Tony Blair, was interviewed back in 2007. I believe that was the cash for access inquiry, but he wasn't under caution. What's it going to be like if Boris has to go into the Met and be interviewed under caution? And there will be this really very, very make or break question. Did the prime minister mislead parliament? I mean, we had Keir Starmer in the Commons yesterday pointing out that on the 1st of December, the Prime Minister told the Commons all COVID guidance was followed completely in number 10. On the 8th of December, I have repeatedly been assured there was no party, said the Prime Minister. And he actually managed to give the impression rather brilliantly, Liam, that there was only one party to be investigated and there now seem to be 17. So, I think this is a very, very serious moment. I mean, do you think it could all fall apart quite quickly if Sue Ellen pouts her lips and says something quite damning? What do you think? Yeah, maybe Sue Ellen shot JR or BJ, (laughs) as we must now 
say, you know, at the end when they shot Dallas, they had to shoot lots of different endings with different people actually shooting JR because the the production company were worried that various actors and people on the set were going to go out and bet. It was mad, wasn't it? The Wurzels did a song, I Shot JR, didn't they? Do you remember? I got a sign on the back of my car saying, I Shot JR. Anyway, I digress because it is obviously a serious situation. And if the 1922 committee move against Boris, he's toast. I mean, even the broadcasters uh, must cower when it comes to the influence of the 22 committee over the Conservative Party and indeed the government. If there is a vote of no confidence and it will be sparked by backbenchers, the same people who made up the European Research Group, the COVID Research Group, very, very independent-minded, forensic Conservative backbenchers who really have their finger on the pulse of Middle England, if you like, the Knights of the Shires. If they think that he is a loser rather than a winner, then he is over. But I think there will also be a lot of calculation going on. The various leadership candidates aren't particularly impressive in the eyes of a lot of those conservative backbenchers. That's certainly my impression, having talked to lots of them, and I know you talked to lots of MPs also. And so they're going to want to wait, aren't they? Why would any leadership candidate want to have to own this cost of living spike in April, want to have to own the kicking that the Tories look as if they're going to get in the local elections in May. They want Boris to absorb that. So I think unless Sue Gray is really, really damning and her remit suggests that she won't be and her civil service background suggests the language won't be incendiary enough in order to drive bad enough newspaper headlines for the Prime Minister, then I do think he's going to stick around. We've just watched Prime Minister's questions. Let's talk about the two senior people from the 1922 committee, Nusgarni and William Ragg, who, like David Davis, seem to be publicly campaigning now for the Prime Minister to, in the name of God, go. Well, it did seem a little bit more than a coincidence, didn't it? We had William Ragg, one of the deputy chairs of the very influential 1922 committee, going public with uh, allegations that the Whip's office had been blackmailing and threatening to take secondary school building away from certain constituencies, which, as far as I know, is generally considered to be the job description. But anyway, I think he's gone off to the police with that. And then we had, as you said, Nusgarni, who, again, after quite a long period has elapsed, I think, has gone public with a quite inflammatory accusation that she was let go from her ministerial position for one of the people. She didn't say who, but there'd been an allegation that her Muslimness, rather an unfortunate word, had been part of letting her go. I've been doing a bit of reading, Liam, and it, it did seem that there were various other things she'd done at the dispatch box about not being entirely truthful about the costs of HS2, which had led to that sacking. But anyway, you know, the the combined force of both of those does slightly make you wonder whether there's a a bit of a coordinated campaign to dump on Boris from a great height. I think you're right. It does seem coordinated when you have people going public on what happens in the whip's office on the sort of cut and thrust of up-close politics. It isn't edifying. It is a contact sport. Then it makes it very difficult for Boris Johnson to spark any kind of whips operation when he's going to need it most, which is the moment Sue Gray publishes her report. And and as for Nusgani, of course, we must take all allegations of 
discrimination of that kind absolutely seriously. But I would just say, aside from the rights and wrongs of that case, and we have to see what comes out in terms of that, I'm not prejudging that. I do have to say, as somebody from an immigrant background myself, my dad came over in the 1950s from the west of Ireland. This is not a systemically racist country. This is a government also with many, many people of immigrant stock, proud families in the cabinet from Rishi Sunak to Priti Patel to Sajid Javid to Kwesi Kwateng, you know, to Nadim Zahawi. You know, our top, top echelons of politics are studded, rightly so, with people who reflect our nation. And so I'm not saying that Nusgani is right or wrong. I just wouldn't want this to be construed as a statement that Britain is a racist country or that the Prime Minister is somehow not doing the right thing when it comes to diversity within his own government. Of all the things you can throw at Boris Johnson, I don't think that's one of them. I completely agree, Liam. I've been really cross about that this week. You know, I mean, Boris is about just two generations away from a Turkish Muslim sort of great-grandfather. We could do with a few more paddies in the government, though. Let me say that. (laughs) (laughs) Can we think of an Irish emigre who might make a good chance of the exchequer? Who knows about... uh, quantitative easing. The name eludes me, Halligan. The name eludes me. Can I just say I really agree with that. I'm absolutely fed up of every time there's some Islamophobia accusation. And I just think they absolutely seize on it. The TV news, they cannot get enough of telling us how disgracefully Islamophobic or racist we are. And as you say, if you look at the cabinet, there are two senior members of the cabinet who are Muslim. There are two more who are Asian. We have people from African backgrounds. We have Kemi Badenoch, Kwasi Kwarteng. It's a fantastic, it's a fantastic, uh, all the kind of diversity that Labour is always preaching and somehow mysteriously fails to deliver itself. Time for a quick bit of George before we go into the interview. Drum roll. So George is our senior source within NHS England. George has full access to the internal data of the NHS. We can't disclose his or her identity, but we're confident in the authenticity of George's statistics, which is why you report them, Alison, but we can't independently verify them because we get them before they're published, if indeed they're ever published. No, indeed. Well, it's things are really looking good in the NHS, Liam. Despite what you might hear to the contrary, George says COVID-occupied beds continue to fall down to just over 14,000 yesterday, which represents a huge reduction of more than 2,000 beds since the previous Tuesday. Now, this is a critical bit. Out of the 14,000 current inpatients, only 6,250 are primarily in hospital for COVID treatment. So that figure is still being hugely overreported. So this only 6,250 of that 14,000 are actually receiving treatment for COVID. Hospital admissions are also falling, says George. And the proportion of those who are primarily suffering from COVID is going down. This is some really good news. There are now fewer than 500 COVID patients in ITUs in the whole of England. That decline is happening 
across every region and overall occupancy of intensive care stands at 72%, which is really, really good, Liam, for January. Just 2,900 of our ICU beds are occupied, of which 480 are COVID. We could just point out, co-pilot, that this is a far cry from the guesstimates made by our friends on SAGE when they were calling for Christmas restrictions. I do apologise for interrupting your podcast listening, but I wanted to pop in to tell you about another Telegraph podcast, mine. I'm Christopher Hope, also known as Chopper, and I'm one of the paper's long-standing political reporters and host of a weekly podcast called Chopper's Politics. It's full to the brim with political insight and Westminster gossip, recorded from the heart of the action in the Red Lion pub, just around the corner from Parliament and Downing Street. Each episode I chat to the movers and shakers in British politics, from London Mayor Sadiq Khan to leader of the House of Commons, Jacob Rees-Mogg. So pull up a pew and join me for your dose of analysis, news and views on Chopper's politics. Find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Cheerio! Now, here on Planet Normal, we don't ask just anyone to stir away with us on the rocket of right thinking, the capsule of common sense. We seek out courageous, independent thinkers from across business, politics and the arts. One such person from the House of Commons we've admired for some time is the Tory MP for the Isle of Wight, Bob Seeley. A member of the Commons since 2017, Seeley's a former foreign correspondent for The Times and The Washington Post. He has a long-standing interest in the former Eastern Bloc countries. He's seen active service in the British Army in Iraq and Afghanistan, serving as a captain in the Intelligence Corps. As an MP while standing up for his beloved Isle of Wight, Seeley's carved out a reputation for measured, closely researched interventions across a range of issues, not least during the COVID pandemic. Earlier this month, Bob Seeley made a widely admired speech during a Commons debate, slamming the government's, quote, despicable reliance on hysterical COVID forecasts. He called the use of epidemiological modelling by SAGE and ministers alike a national scandal, saying it created a climate of manipulated fear. Bob, fabulous to have you on Planet Normal. You recently gave a pretty impassioned speech to a committee in the House of Commons about modelling. I did, and it's the science of modelling and how modelling's been used in covid And I wasn't out to attack modelling per se, and there has been some truly wonderful, just remarkable science over COVID, but I'm not sure that modelling and the forecasting industry around it has necessarily been one of them. And although I don't want to just criticise needlessly, I'm really concerned, and I think unfortunately it's something of a national scandal, the way that these, some hysterical forecasts have been used effectively to drive lockdowns with a very, very considerable cost because we've now seen, you know, for example, 100,000 kids have just gone missing from school rolls. Where are these people? You're a very assiduous MP, if I may say so, Bob. Your speeches are often analytical. They're closely researched. You really get into the details of a lot of the policies you speak on, uh, not only the epidemiological modelling we've seen, but housing is another issue that you've been following very, very closely Did it surprise you, Bob, as we were going through this pandemic, the extent to which 
people in Downing Street, decision makers were relying on projections about the future based on assumptions as opposed to really examining the data of what we knew had already happened and was happening. Thank you, Lim. You, you flatter me. I, I sometimes wonder, actually, if trying to be analytical is sometimes the right policy, because I think some very often emotional speeches tend to get more pickup on occasion. So it's about trying, trying to strike a happy balance. So there's always, always room for improvement. I mean, like a lot of people, I first started off by trusting government and trusting what the scientists were saying. But after the first lockdown, and as we move towards the second lockdown, I think some of us were becoming increasingly sceptical of some of the evidence. And as Steve Baker pointed out in this debate that we had in Westminster Hall last week, the government was effectively bounced into the second lockdown by forecast and modelling figures leaked to the media, which were then very quickly proved to be highly questionable. And I think at that point on, I became increasingly concerned. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a mathematician. So I'm not making the argument myself, Liam, but what I'm doing is I'm looking at the peer-reviewed reporting, so the academically credible reporting that's coming out around this. But if I could just take a step back, I think this is a scandal that comes in three parts. Firstly, 2001, we had the foot and mouth emergency and we had a policy that was responsible for slaughtering thousands of animals. That policy was allegedly heavily influenced by modelling prepared by Imperial College and Professor Neil Ferguson. Not only him and other people as well, but they were certainly part of that mix. And two peer-reviewed papers since then, in 2006 and 2011, have really significantly criticised some of the more novel science and the mathematics and the modelling that came out off the back of that. So I quoted in the speech, I said, looking at the 2006 paper, the academics said that the models that were used to make significant decisions to slaughter millions of animals were, quotes, not fit for purpose. Their use was imprudent and amounted to an abuse of predicted models, and the models themselves were unvalidated. And devastatingly, the authors wrote, the UK experience provides a salutary warning of how models can be abused in the interest of scientific opportunism. But then from the summer of 2021, when we didn't start locking down, despite what the modelers and the forecasters were saying. That was Freedom Day, July the 19th, wasn't it, Bob? That was it. But if you look like at that summer, you had the Swedish epidemiologists who said they were using Imperial's measurements, Imperial dispute that. But the Swedish epidemiologists effectively were very dismissive. So the former chief epidemiologist, Johan Gisek, if that's the correct pronunciation of his name, said Ferguson's models were, quote, almost hysterical. And their then Swedish chief epidemiologist, Anders Tegnell, who was responsible for a very different policy over lockdown, said that of the Imperial's models that they were, quotes, quite extreme and, quotes, always quite doubtful. And so from that moment onwards, you had people increasingly questioning the modelling. And now you have quite a lot of academic papers which are being in the process of being peer-reviewed. So they're not quite finished yet, but there's a growing number of them who effectively say that the maths behind the modelling was flawed. And so now we also see, for example, Professor Brendan Wren saying, quotes, dodgy data and flawed forecasts have become the hallmark of much of the scientific establishment, which has traded almost exclusively in worst case scenarios. So the question for me is, where does a fault lie on? Maybe fault's the wrong word, but why has this happened? Is it just the modellers producing doomsday scenarios? 
Is it very risk-averse public health officials who are never going to pay for this, for being risk-averse? It's other people's mental health, other people's jobs, other people's life opportunities, other people's education that has suffered disastrously? Or is it the politicians being scared because they're out of their depth and they're, they're relying on all these officials who say you must lock down? Or is it some elements of the media, like the BBC, which sadly has effectively become the propaganda arm of the lockdown state? Bob, we should qualify this conversation, shouldn't we? Neither of us are medics, neither of us are epidemiologists. But you've been a captain in the British Army and decorated for serving in the Intelligence Corps. I'm a highly trained economist and statistician and spent a lot of my early career constructing and using and analysing economic models, which are often far more complex than straight-line epidemiological models. So... While we're not epidemiologists and lots of people will be screaming at their phone or wherever they're listening to Planet Normal if they come at this from a different angle to us, we do have some skin in this game and we are qualified to at least comment on it with those qualifications. So let me say this to you. When you used phrases in that Westminster Hall debate, so many of the best debates in the House of Commons go on away from the chamber, if you like, inside committee rooms. I've learned that over the years. I wish the public got to see more of those kind of really analytical debates where MPs, particularly backbench MPs, really earn their money, in my view. But you said this use of modelling is a national scandal. You or you paraphrase Churchill's famous wartime speech, never before has so much harm been done to so many by so few. I think, Bob, if I may say so... Liam, based on so little evidence, that was, that, yeah. Yeah, that was the killer line at the end. It, there's been so little evidence for what they have done and the impact on so many people has been so massive. So yes, but, but thank you. I think you've really put your finger on something here. I say that as a fellow nerd, somebody who tries to inject really analytical contributions into our public discourse. I think as and when this public inquiry happens into the UK's pandemic, I do think the use of epidemiological models to the extent they've been used and the reliance on epidemiological models from just a certain quarter you know, no one was asking the likes of Shinetra Gupta or any of the people behind the Great Barrington Declaration, which is about focus protection rather than full lockdown. You know, they're world-leading epidemiologists. They weren't being asked to submit their models. I know some of them tried. What happened within Downing Street that there was so much emphasis on such a narrow range of scientists and this use of the science as a phrase, a catch-all alibi, if you like, for doing anything that the government wanted when there was no the science. The science was emerging. It was the science was lots of scientists discussing and debating about what was really happening, a debate and discussion which never really saw the light of day among the political media class. No, I mean, look, I, I have no qualifications to talk about this whatsoever, but I just have something in you know my gut that's saying, hold on, there's something wrong here. And in fact, what I tried to do and what I have been doing for the last few months is just following what scientists are writing. So I'm looking at a lot of preprint articles, some peer-reviewed stuff which has come out since. But when you've got people writing, we find no clear significant benefit of these sort of more restrictive non-pharmaceutical interventions, that's lockdown in plain speak, 
when you've got academics saying the claim benefits of lockdown have been grossly exaggerated, when you've got German academics saying that um, so the spread of coronavirus receded before interventions, before lockdown became effective. I mean, the damage that we've done is extraordinary. And I do think, despite my own personal ignorance in this, it's not me that's saying to Ferguson or Imperial or other people, you have failed. It's actually me quoting academics. I'm being very careful here in what I'm saying. I think this is a major scandal, but my evidence does not come from myself. It comes from all the peer-reviewed reports that I'm reading that cast doubt on what's been said by Imperial uh, and others. You told fellow MPs modelling and forecasts were the ammunition, in your view, that drove lockdown and created a climate of manipulated fear. But you qualified that very carefully, Bob. I've read your speech closely. This is not just the fault of the modellers, but it's how their work was interpreted by public health officials, by the media, and yes, by politicians, and sadly, by government too. What lessons do we need to learn as and when there's another respiratory virus that is worse than flu, another emergency pandemic. What lessons do you want us to take from this one, particularly in terms of the use of models and data and how we tap into our world-class scientific community here in this country? Let's not beat about the bush. What do you want us to learn, Bob? Okay, firstly, scepticism. Science is the art of intelligent and noble scepticism. But it's a sort of healthy scepticism, but at the same time, a respect for science. But to say follow the science, as some Secretary of States did, I'm sorry. I mean, I want to hold my head in my hands in despair at that. It's not like some sort of one-armed bandit on a seaside, you know, alley. You don't ka-ching one answer from science. It depends what the inputs are. It depends what the question you're trying to get out is. And there were many different answers that science was producing. And effectively, when politicians said to understand the science, they were basically saying there is one answer and there was not. And the idea that there was one answer from effectively a form of modelling guesstimate, I just think is appalling. I mean, it's the only word I've got to describe because it is fundamentally unscientific to say there's one scientific answer when you're trying to forecast something. Secondly, you need critical voices. So all those people from the Barrington Declaration, all those people, you know, they were absent for this debate because it was frightened politicians, risk-averse politicians, risk-averse public health figures. And I I get that. Nobody wants to take risk with people's lives. But the idea that lockdown was a risk-free decision, we are going to be living with the consequences of that for years because we've spent £300 billion that we can't spend twice. You know, we're paying for that in interest rates, in debt levels. That money is not going to be spent on schools and hospitals in future because we've spent it. As I say, there are 100,000 kids missing from the school rolls. You know, some kids have been beaten to death during lockdown, as appallingly we've seen, because those parents have now been, you know, charged with murdering their children. To say that lockdown carried no price was, I think, highly highly misleading. So we need to be sceptical in the good sense of the word. We need to listen to other people. There's expression in the army. When you're planning an operation, there's the most likely course of action and there is the most dangerous course of action, Liam. And if you want to sum up our mistakes over lockdown and modelling in a sentence, is that the media, the politicians, the public health officials and the scientists and the modellers, some of them anyway, took the most dangerous course of action 
and allowed themselves to present it as the most likely course of action with profound outcomes for our society. It's always difficult to know what the counterfactual would have been, Bob, but would you say from your research, and I know you've done a great deal of reading and talking to people in this area, would you say that lockdown has killed more people than it's saved here in the UK? I don't think we can tell that. Imperial did a peer-reviewed piece shortly after lockdown, and they and they found that restrictive non-pharmaceutical interventions, so lockdowns, had saved over 3 million lives in Europe. That has now been significantly questioned by academics who are producing peer-reviewed studies from, frankly, across the world to say that is very unlikely to be the case. But there was a, a piece of work done by mathematicians who looked at countries that had very heavy rules over lockdown and very light touch rules over lockdown in Europe. And they found no difference of mortality. In fact, the study was called Did Lockdown Work? An Economist's Cross-Country Comparison. And they found that mortality across Europe had no association between different types of lockdown or different types of non-pharmaceutical interventions. In other words, and I'll quote from the document, the lockdowns have not worked as intended. Very interesting, Bob. I must ask you, to finish, I know you are an MP that focuses very much on your constituency. You're very proud to represent Isle of Wight and trying to make detailed contributions in certain areas. But I must ask you, what do you make of the current situation where it's very difficult for a British for the British Prime Minister, whatever else is going on, to get beyond questions about Downing Street parties, about Downing Street wallpaper, around birthday cakes and so on? I support Boris, and I wish this wasn't happening, and I'm very frustrated by it. But I, I totally understand why people are frustrated, and people are frustrated in part because, you know, lockdown exacted a, a, a very significant toll on people. My frustration is that we're about to have the first major war potentially in Europe since World War II, a state-on-state conflict. We have had 100,000 kids missing from the school rolls. We've got more debt than any time in our history. We need to get out of COVID and get back to living again. There has never been a time in the last 10, 15 years when we've had more significant issues facing us. And yet you cannot talk about these things without simply being asked time and time again to return to the subject of parties and birthday cakes. Do I care about that? Yes, I care up to a point. But I can tell you now, all the discussion about Partygate is not going to get another kid back in school. You know, it's not going to get scientists to focus on the important things. You know, it's not going to solve a war in, in Eastern Europe that may kill tens of thousands of people. You know, I just find it personally, I find it incredibly frustrating. I understand why people are angry, don't get me wrong. But our priorities right now should be on really, really big, really important things, and they're not. And that's that's my personal frustration. Bob Seeley, thanks a lot for voyaging with us to Planet Normal. What a fantastic guest co-pilot. I actually caught Bob Seeley's speech in Westminster Hall, and, and I was cheering him on because, of course, he's very much singing from the Planet Normal him sheet, isn't he? And I think, as he said to you, we need to look at how hysterical models have been used to drive lockdown and that there has been an absence of critical voices. Now, I don't usually complain about these things because I'm a journalist and I take the rough with the smooth, but I've got to tell you, co-pilot, that whenever in my Telegraph column 
I mentioned how far out, and I don't mean far out in the 60s sense, I mean, you know, how... <laughs> far out, man, far, far out. Far <laughs> out, man. That's what Shaggy would say, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. But how woefully wrong some of these models have been. In comes the complaint to the paper reporting me to Ipsos, which is our arbitration body. They do not like it up and Halligan. They are on it if you dare to criticise. And it's so refreshing to hear this highly intelligent, informed MP, Bob Seeley, really questioning it. And Bob did mention foot and mouth, Liam. One of our regular helpers, Charlie Robinson, a scientist, he was working in farming for a while. And Charlie always quotes what happened in farming because of those foot and mouth forecasts all those years ago. More than 40 farmers took their own lives and six and a half million sheep, cattle and pigs were slaughtered on the basis of what is now widely agreed to be really bad forecasting. And I want to see, we we will be talking about this more in the coming weeks, I want to see the public inquiry drilling down into the results from these mathematical models. As Bob Seeley said, I mean, Professor Sinetra Gupta is always saying to me, not all models are bad, but when you fail to put in real world data, you get some of the crazy forecasts which have driven measures, which have, you know, caused people tremendous suffering. Well, I do think Bob Seeley's an interesting chap. This is a guy who didn't go to university. He's just quietly completed a PhD, by the way, in his spare time, as well as being a very diligent, by all accounts, constituency MP. And listening back to it now, co-pilot, I should apologise to listeners. I think there's a bit too much of me in that interview. But I'd say the reason there was is because this is what I spent, you know, most of my 20s doing, academic, economic modelling, at places like the International Monetary Fund and various think tanks and London School of Economics and so on. And I'm concerned here deeply because economic models, epidemiological models, they are very, very useful aids to thinking. They force you to gather information, to ask tough questions, to make assumptions and really think things through. The danger is when models are used in a highly politically charged environment. It always goes wrong. And I think it's absolutely wrong that we were so dependent on modelling and the debate at the heart of Downing Street didn't include more psychologists, psychiatrists, sociologists, economists, educationalists, social workers. There should have been much, much more heed paid to a broader range of opinion than just a hand-picked group of scientists who, I'm afraid it seems to me, were simply coming up with the answers that they thought the government wanted. Now it's time for our fantastic listener emails. Liam, we mentioned earlier, didn't we, my column about the ongoing scandal in care homes and health and social care settings with vulnerable people being unable to be comforted by loved ones. And I mentioned this actually sadly now dead, but wonderful man called Mario Finotti, 91-year-old Italian who was incarcerated in a care home and knotted together his bed sheets and basically tried to lower himself out of the care home. So he, Mario, is my hero of the week. But I have had a flood 
of emails coming in on this topic and just want you to know that Planet Normal will be campaigning on what we do think is a national scandal. Steve says, please do publicise the existence of the essential caregiver status. My mother's care home has had two lockdowns in the past few months. My father, brother and I were desperate to visit my mum during this time. During the lockdown of the home in October, November, I emailed and or phoned the care home, the care home company, the Department of Health and Social Care, UK HSA National, UK HSA Regional, local CCG, CQC and the County Council to gain permission for at least one of us to be able to visit mum. The agencies passed me back and forth between their regional and national departments, each saying it was the responsibility of the other. The agencies that expressed an opinion said they could not see a reason why we, or at least one of us, could not visit. Crucially, however, none said we could visit. And by this time, the 30-day lockdown had almost finished. For the latest lockdown, I was better prepared and received a reply to my request from the regional UK HSA within days. The reply directed me to the essential caregiver guidance, which allows visits by one nominated person even during an outbreak of COVID. So I applied to the care home for ECG status, which was granted. It transpires that my mother's care home knew about this option all along, but it seems care homes in general don't want to implement ECG status and most certainly don't publicise it. Now, Halligan, we're going to rant about this at length sometime, but this is what is happening. Public health risk aversion leading to incarceration. You would not be able to keep a murderer in solitary confinement for as long as disabled young people and elderly people in care homes have been kept in their rooms for over 42 days. You know, Alison, I, I will say again, what, whatever smears you cast about my pathetic <laughs> writings in The Telegraph, the, your column this week was really powerful. Listeners can see it on The Telegraph website. We'll put the link to your column in the show notes to this Planet Normal episode and it was your column which inspired the email we just heard and I really do hope that the government takes up your plea for a law to enshrine our inalienable right to have somebody with us who we love and trust in our darkest hours at the time of our death and extreme illness that should just be a given. Yeah. And for too many people, that hasn't happened due to overzealous bureaucracy. And we've had so many emails about this from Planet Normal listeners. Absolutely. Literally hundreds. for months and months and months. And good on you. And I really hope that that campaign that you're trying to get off the ground takes hold and we can make Planet Normal the epicenter of that campaign, if you play your cards right. Now, this is from <laughs> David. I took my wife to the local surgery today and was waiting in the reception area while she had some blood taken. I'm allowed to do that, which is nice, given that it's freezing and I didn't fancy sitting in the car for a while with the engine on getting grief from St. Greta of Thunberg. <laughs> anyway, there was this woman sitting in the reception area and one of the receptionists came out to talk to her. I couldn't help but overhear. The receptionist asked why the woman was waiting there and she explained she had an appointment. The receptionist took her name and disappeared for a minute or two. This is a summary of the conversation when the receptionist returned to see the lady. Receptionist. Hello again, Mrs. Blah, blah, blah. Your appointment's actually a telephone consultation. Mrs. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, I thought I was seeing the doctor. Receptionist. No, it was a telephone <laughs> appointment. A few seconds of silence. 
Mrs. Blah, blah, blah. Well, can't I just see the doctor? Receptionist, no, I'm sorry. If you go home now, then the doctor <laughs> will phone you. The poor lady was lost for words. We're all wearing masks, of course, but when she looked over at me, at least I could see her eyes roll and I rolled mine in return. What madness is this? Okay, she may have misunderstood what type of appointment she'd been given, but if she's there physically in the surgery, couldn't the doctor have seen her? Apparently not. In the moment, of course, us ordinary folk probably can't think of the appropriate response to this idiocy. But I suppose mine might have been, if I'd been the lady in question, to give the receptionist my mobile number and ask her to get the doctor to ring me in the reception area, (laughs) rather than wait for me to get home and see where things went from there. Which could have been quite interesting if, for instance, the doctor had decided a face-to-face appointment might have been appropriate to follow up after all. This is totally bonkers says David. What's going on? Cheers, Planet Normal co-pilots. Keep up the good work. (laughs) That is fantastic, David. And while we're on the subject of bonkers co-pilot, I did a list of my top 50 craziest COVID rules in my column last week, and I asked people to send in their particular lunatic favourites, and we've just been absolutely inundated. David says, on Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire, where many people drive to walk their dogs, the military police were issuing penalty notices to people parking their cars in the car park. They ran PNC, that's Police National Computer Checks, to get the driver's address. Then they worked out if he or she had driven further than the distance of the dog walk. If so, a ticket and a warning would be issued. All the tickets were later cancelled after local protests. Susie says, when our swimming club eventually got back into the pool after the first lockdown, we were not able to do any strokes which created heavy breathing. Backstroke was banned as you were face up and breathing into the air, which only left front crawl. And Daniel, my personal favourite, was the COVID rule, which said that it was legal to have my mother inside my home, but only if she was also an estate agent trying to sell the house or a plumber trying to fix the boiler. And John, finally, in August 2020, a company in Cambridge offering punting tours had this on its website, for safety reasons, we cannot distribute life jackets. <laughs> On that bombshell. On that bombshell. That's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, it's my turn. I think it has to be the mad sitcom from the doctor's receptionist, don't you, from David, which made us chuckle and showed the idiocy of current practices at the hands of some doctors. So, David, email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and put it in the email subject, mug winner, with your address. And a Planet Normal, rare as hen's teeth, mug will wing its way to you. And please do, if you've got your favourite bonkers COVID rule, do send it to us and we'll read it out. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please leave us a rating and review on Apple podcast or spotify it really helps with the halligan ego which needs regular soothing and it does help i never mentioned the multiple awards that i've won <laughs> the multiple awards that you've won you haven't won the wallace and gromit award for uh, cheesy Edgar, writing for cheesy writing yes it also helps others to find us so that the fantastic planet normal family can grow do keep emailing us we love reading your messages they keep us sane And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal, the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever 
to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Theodora Leludis. Stay safe, in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.